Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways that the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Today, I am happy to have Witold Rybczynski back on the program. As the author of more than 20 award-winning books, Witold is a wealth of knowledge and his books provide invaluable insights into a variety of subjects ranging from the history of the screwdriver to numerous books on architecture. Today, we're going to be talking about the extraordinary life and work of Frederick Law Olmsted, a pioneer of landscape architecture and the designer of many of America's most recognized and beloved landscapes, including Central Park and the Emerald Necklace in Boston. Witold, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to hear you share the story of Frederick Law Olmsted with our audience. Well, thanks for inviting me back. It's a pleasure. So, Vitold, your fantastic book, A Clearing in the Distance, Frederick Law Olmsted and America in the 19th Century, tells us the story of this legendary figure. And yet Olmsted's early wandering years do not foretell the greatness of his later contributions. Vitold, can you tell us about Olmsted's early upbringing and education? Sure. I I was looking at the book again uh, this morning, and I I noticed that uh, he doesn't start his career as a landscape architect until two thirds of the way through the book. <laughs> so most most of his life is actually spent unknowingly, but preparing for this career. Uh, you asked about his education; he really didn't have an education. He was not a good student, so. He gets shifted from one school to another. Of course, in those days, they, they they only were beginning to have formal sort of grade schools. So schooling meant to you were sent to usually some uh, religious figure, some minister who took in students, and, and he would teach you about the classics and make you read books. And it was very, very informal. And for some reason, he gets shifted... Every few years he gets moved and it's not clear whether he's just because he's a bad student or they, his, these, these are always, he was always sent away. So it was like going to a boarding school in a way. It was, he was always a boarder at these places. Also his, his mother dies when he's very young and, and one has the feeling that his stepmother somehow isn't interested. She, she's interested in the children that she has with her with his father, but somehow the, the two stepsons don't get sort of second billing all the time. Um, on the other hand, his, his younger brother, John, uh, does very well in life and ends up going to Yale and studying medicine and becoming a doctor, uh, dies very young, tragically. But uh, So it's clearly Olmsted is not a student. He's not somebody who likes, he likes the outdoors, he, he uh likes going for long walks, uh, takes his little brother with him on some huge long walks, which today you would never send a, a 10-year-old on, on something like that. But um, whereas his, his father, and his father understands his son very well. So as soon as he can, he sort of gets apprenticed to a surveyor which is a kind of outdoorsy profession. And he actually spends several years and it's it's the beginning of this preparation because of course being learning surveying is very good for a landscape architect if you're going to lay out parks and and streets and various things that's something you should know and and it is something that he knows and then he but he but he he loses interest in it he wants uh, at one point he he decides he wants to become a sailor and he convinces his father he gets a a job as a sort of apprentice sailor on a clipper ship going to China, and he get, goes all the way to China. It almost kills him with being a. He he. It wasn't that he was a a kind of rough and tumble sailor. He was like the equivalent of a say a midshipman in a navy boat. This was a one of those tea boats, tea clippers, fast sailing boats, 
And he and so he goes, he ends up going to China. He's so sick that he actually doesn't get off the boat in China. So he doesn't see China. But he he makes it back and he realizes that this isn't really a career that he wants. And so he gets a job on in a sort of in New York City. His his he grows up in Hartford, Connecticut. And he he works in a in a sort of importing place. Um, and then he gets this idea he wants to be a farmer. It's a little bit like today's sort of back to the land people who who live in cities but think they their lives will be farmed. But in his case, it was slightly different because he wanted to be what was then called a scientific farmer, which meant uh, there was a lot of sort of work going on at that time. There were publications and people sort of trying to to bring a more scientific approach to farming. And his, his father buys him a farm. Uh, initially, he buys a farm off the on the Connecticut coast and later on on Staten Island. Uh, and he... He does spend quite a long time doing this. And when he, his farm on Staten Island, he realized New York is so close, it doesn't make sense to just uh, be a kind of ordinary farmer. You've got this huge market next to you. So he, be, he basically starts a nursery. And that starts him, he, he of course reads a lot of magazines, journals at that time about farming. And he starts writing articles about his experiences about about sort of technical articles about about raising various types of things and the nursery that he has and so and and then partway through he joins his his brother who's now at Yale and studying um, becoming a doctor uh, is goes on a walking tour in England and Europe and and uh, Olmsted convinces his father that he, he, he to allow him to join and basically to bankroll a trip. He, his farming is not extremely lucrative. And so he goes to and spends a, a summer walking around uh, Germany, basically Germany and England. We know a lot about the English part of his trip because he ends up, he comes home and he writes a book about it. The, the walks of an American farmer in England and and one of the things, so so it introduces him to writing, but he also sees, uh, and this is very becomes very influential later in life. He sees this public park, one of the first public parks uh, in Liverpool, which is where the boat lands, where he lands, and uh, he it obviously makes a big impression. He devotes a chapter of his book to it. At this point, he's not thinking about how do you design a park, but he's very impressed by it. Because it's it's most English parks were really estates that were converted into parks, but this was a park uh, uh, built for for by the city for for the ordinary person, and all of that Im impresses him a great deal. Plus, he's very impressed by the Amer by English landscapes and English landscape gardens. The uh, what he, about them impresses him? Vital uh, about them. I think it's the it's it's he grew up, of course, in Connecticut. Connecticut is a very old, established, and in a way, very English landscape. So it it I think what impressed him was that they that this was man-made. When when he's he talks about I went to see this when I was writing the book. There's this capability Brown did this big estate that, that he visited. And you know, the fact that you could create a natural landscape, because it looks natural and it's actually more beautiful than nature. Uh, Olmsted is not, not an environmentalist, you see. He, he, for him, nature is a sort of transcendental experience. But of course, most nature is not transcendental. It's rather dull and ordinary. And, you know, a field, a farmer's field is not a beautiful object, but, but there are these moments in nature. This is how he's thinking about it. Uh, which sort of lift you up, sort of a, you know, Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. There are these moments which which are transcendental, but the fact that you could design this was something that I don't think occurred to him before, and that's what he sees. And of course, the English landscapes are very old. I mean, the Capability Brown is a couple of hundred years old, so these are established, old, beautiful parks and 
And of course, there's nothing like that in America. We don't have parks. The closest we come to parks are cemeteries. They're the only designed landscapes in, in America at that point. And in fact, people visit them. Partly they're visiting you know, their dead ancestors, but partly they're having picnics because it's the only place like that. You know, that's, otherwise, you have this horrible, dirty city, which mm. is what New York and Brooklyn, you know, there's the muddy streets, there are you know, pigs wandering around. I mean, they're horrible places, and, and that you, you can't, you would not do anything. There's no leisure in the city. There are places for work. Whereas the cemetery was this beautiful landscape, green, very quiet, you know, no, no horse carts, nothing, no, no roads, not, none of noise. And then people appreciate them. So the, and, and he actually experienced this because he lived in Brooklyn and in Brooklyn had one of these big, I can't remember the name now, but one of these very large old cemeteries and, and that was an experience that he also had. But so, so the experiencing a park in itself was something that you couldn't do in America, and only only the travel to England allowed him to do that. So yeah, he has okay. all these experiences, but unknowingly they're adding up to something. He doesn't know it yet, <laughs> but they are, and 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 they help him when he actually starts doing things in that field. So you're you're telling. The story makes me think about how his curiosity leads him and how, um, you know, there are different ways that people learn. Clearly, he was an active learner. And then I guess he had the good fortune of having a family, particularly a father that could support those endeavors and allow him yes. to, you know, dwell in them. Um, but I, I think it is also heartening when you when you tell the tale of Olmsted, because it's not you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, um, but one's journey through life is not clear. And certainly for a figure as great as Frederick Law said, when you read about those early years, um, I think it's fascinating to see um, how how wandering it was, in fact, and what it ultimately led to. So when, um, can we talk a little bit about how he made, let's say, the more... Um, the transition into landscape architecture? Where, when did that happen? How did that happen? Well, what's interesting is that it did not happen with Central Park, which is the first thing that he's involved with, which is, of course, what we remember him for, because it's partly because it's in the largest city in the country and partly because it's it's so important in that city. But uh, Well, actually, sorry, Vitale, I don't want to interrupt it, you, but because you brought Central Park, can we can we linger there for a moment? Um how how did he come to design uh, Central Park, along with, obviously, yeah. um, the New York architect, Calvert Fox? Yeah. Well, what happened was he, as I told you, he he got involved in writing and, and he, he, he liked it. He enjoyed it. He liked writing articles. And he ended up getting involved as a as an editor in, in a magazine called Putnam's, which was sort of like the Atlantic Monthly of that time. It was it all the great Melville uh all the all the great writers were contributors to it and and he ended up being an editor of that and so he got to know all these literary people and and then as happens today the magazine went belly up and he had to he had to find a new job i mean the magazine went bankrupt and and he his father he had convinced his father to invest in the magazine so he owed his father money so he had to make he had to get a job. And at that time, the city of New York had decided to build Central Park. And, and it was in this rectangle way up north. There was nothing up there. There were no there were nobody was building yet. The city was all in the south, uh, what we call the business, you know, the business area. But uh, so they needed they bought this. I forget now three is it 800 acres, something like that. But it, it's, they needed cheap land, so they had, they had to go way outside the city. But uh, they were going to build this park, and it was going to... Uh, when you say they, what do you mean? Oh, that means the city. The administration oh. of the city had bought... This was public land. They, I mean, they, they, they spent public money to acquire the land, uh, and it was a, it was going to be a a municipal project, a big municipal project. There were in the, there were people who were visionaries at the time, 
Bryant, various other people who just convinced them that it, they needed this. They had that they had already laid out the grid, and 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 it was clear that you you just couldn't have a city with only a grid. And there was kind of a sense they were starting to travel. People were seeing European cities, and clearly, just having a huge grid full of buildings was not going to be a great city. And they so they had ambitions at that point. Um, and and they want they they needed a superintendent. The rat the political rationale for the park was make work. You know they 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 would this would employ lots of people and it would help the economy. And they needed somebody to to oversee the park and and they were the 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 various political parties were very skeptical that it would just become a patronage project. <laughs> So they wanted a the, the majority of people in in the city council were Republicans. So they wanted a Republican, uh, which which Olmsted was, to the extent that he was involved in politics. Um, but they they didn't want somebody who was a sort of insider, because they were afraid. Both all the parties involved wanted some kind of an outsider, and so they were looking for somebody. And he he heard a, a friend of his told him about this, and he he thought. Well, I need a job, and this might, you know, this might be, it might be. Anyway, it was a, it was a job. It was a, it was a, an important job, a well-paid job. So he needed the money, and he, he sort of cobbled together a sort of CV based on, you know, he had written a book. He had seen this park in Liverpool. He had been a farmer, so he knew all about that. A lot of it is kind of made up because he really wasn't particularly skilled he wasn't an engineer for instance or anybody anything like that he had never actually he had never run a bureaucracy but neither had anybody else who applied for the job so his the main thing he ended up getting the job the main reason he got the job i think was that he he had about 200 people who signed a letter for him and right so he, he was very well liked it seems well, because he had, he was an editor. He was an editor of this important magazine. So he had a lot of important literary figures. And the, the chief one was Washington Irving, who was like the grand old man of, of letters in America. And and so if if you had the support of Irving, and we, it's hard to, to think of anything like that today because we don't really think writers are very important. But it would be, I suppose, like getting... I don't know, maybe a great, uh, again, it's hard. I can't think of a modern parallel because we, we, uh, we don't consider. Or maybe editors to leading magazines, you know, that feature individuals, perhaps. But we think people like, you know, Donald Trump or, or, or uh, what's his name? Uh, the Tesla guy. I mean, those oh, are the Elon people. Musk. Yeah, Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. Those are the people that we think are important. A writer or a painter or or a book uh, editor is not an important person today anymore. But he was at that time. So with the support of Washington Irving, he he was a kind of shoe in. So he got the job, and the job was superintendent of of Central Park. He had nothing to do with putting you know, the decision to make the park, that was already taken. Um, and then what happened was that the somebody decided we're, we should have a competition. We shouldn't give just give the design. Because nobody knew what this would look like. I mean, there, no, there were no parks in America. So, so they decided to have a competition. And it sounds it sounds sort of odd to us, but for instance, the engineer of, of Central Park, there was an engineer appointed already. Uh, he enters the competition. So so it, it was okay for insiders to enter this competition. It wasn't we would probably not allow that anymore, but but they did. And and Calvert Vox, who was an, an English architect. Who had worked with with Downing, who was the the great sort of the closest thing you get to a a landscape architect at that time? Downing had died in a tragic accident, but he was he was he was well known. He had written books, and and so Vox was his his sort of 
not really his partner, almost more like a, an associate of his, but he had worked with him. But Vox was an immigrant. He was English. Uh, he was not impressive. He was, he was about five feet tall, a very tiny man. And so he felt he really needed somebody. And he, he approached Olmsted and he said, well, you're the superintendent, so you know all about the ins and outs of the park, you know, the site and so on. And and I, I'm an architect, so I can draw. Well, Olmsted couldn't draw. Olmsted was not a designer at that point. So he, he was an editor. I mean, he was a, a bookman more than... So so they he convinced Olmsted that they should enter the competition together. And and so th- th- so they did, and uh, they came up with a, a design that was actually a very good design. It's a very awkward site. It's this long, skinny site. And one of the requirements that the city said had, they didn't have many requirements. It, they, it was very open. But one was that, they, that certain streets had to cross the park. Otherwise, it would sort of cut the city in half. So every, there were three streets that were required to cross the park. And, and we don't know who had this idea, whether it was Olmsted or Bob's, but they had the idea of depressing these streets so they could cross the park without, but what you could, they would have bridges and, and it wouldn't interfere with, with the park as, as much as a surface road where you, you would have to somehow, they didn't have traffic lights yet. So I, I don't know how you would have gotten across. So they also separated, they had carriage drives and they, they carriage drives and the walkways were, were on different levels. So the, the walkways, you know, the famous bridges and tunnels of Central Park, that's to get under the carriage drives. And so it's actually a very good design. It, it overcomes a lot of the, the constraints of a narrow site. Uh, and uh, they also came up for instance, with the idea of, of, of big ponds where you could have boats in the summer and skating in the winter. Skating in the winter was complete. Nobody had ever had that. Didn't exist in New York. Uh, you know, it wasn't like Canada where people or or Holland where people skated on the canals. There really wasn't any. And so this became one of the things that launched the park immediately because the southern portion of the park, which they built first, has this big lake which freezes over. It was colder then in the winter, and and skating became this huge fad. It was like you know, the hula hoop or... Uh, so they imagined it as a usable landscape is what you're saying. You know, something well, that... Well, no, that was, it was, that was the point of the park to begin with. But for instance, some of the entries in the park had sort of a racing track in the park, you know. So there, were, there, there was no idea of what should it be. I mean, or, or should, it, should it have just a big open area for military parades or something. So, so, uh, but it was all, the, the idea of usable was, that was the whole point of the park, was there was, it was a place for people to go. And I don't think, and I don't think the city had a clear idea of what people would do there. So. I guess that's what I meant. They had a kind of clear idea of how uh, the, well, they, the, they, the average citizen would enjoy it as I hear you uh, describe it or no. Well, that was very that was very much Olmsted's idea because Olmsted being was su- still superintendent. I mean, he entered the competition, he won the competition, but he was the superintendent, which means he had he was the contractor of that park. And uh, Vox was more like a typical architect. He said, "Well, we won the competition; it's our design, and now I'm going to go and design other things." He wanted to be an architect. He was an architect. He wanted to build buildings. Or, and, and, and Olmsted was really in charge of, A, building it, and then running it. And Vox was always skeptical, of, like, why are you wasting your time? You should go and design things. They didn't have a formal partnership yet. So, so Vox goes, you know, once the design is accepted, Vox's role really is very small because he's, in, he's trying to get work as an architect, whereas it's Olmsted who's really in charge of getting the thing built, of, of, of figuring out how to build it and also of running it. So for instance, he, he's the one who's in charge of putting together a police force for the park to make sure it's safe. 
Uh, and then, you know, what are people going to do there? Uh, initially, there you weren't. They didn't want people to to walk on the grass. It's hard to imagine, <laughs> but they had these big meadows. But and and he's the one who kind of pushed the city to allow people to for just have picnics and sit on the grass. He introduced music to the park, which of course, which also was was a, a revolutionary thing. That the city thought that was kind of weird, and why would you have music in the park? And and he convinced them to do that, and they they had uh, free concerts. I think I can't remember once a week, something like that. And then people would come with like the, they had places where the carriages could stop, and you could sit. You know, the rich people could sit in their carriages and listen to music. The other, the poor people could just come and sit around and listen to the music. So, so he he did have these ideas, which were not design ideas. They were really about they were social ideas. About which really comes from his experience as an editor and and his travel experience uh, and see and, and they really his I guess his his temperament he's he's not he's not a designer who just wants to design his thing and then move on he's very much he's much more of us of a planner in many ways because he's thinking of how do you run the thing and uh is going to be open at night i mean that was a big debate too like should it for initially it closed at sunrise at sunset and then opened at sunrise because it it would consider it sort of partly dangerous and partly sort of people shouldn't go there at night. I mean, they, so they close the park at night. And then eventually, of course, it opens at night and uh, somebody gets killed in the park relatively early. And so the security thing becomes part of it. Uh, he had a he had on also, he organized a dairy which served milk to children. I think free, but I'm not, I don't remember that part of it. But there were there were there were all these things that were very much to do with how it's used, and that that it's an idea of design which is much more than the physical. We don't know at that point or much in his life whether he was he wasn't a, a, a he didn't know how to draw in the in the architectural sense. There are sketches of his. Later, when he published some travel books, there were travel sketches of his, you know, little view, little vignettes. But as far as making drafting drawings, he would hire a draftsman and say, this is what we want. And uh, and if you look at the plan of Central Park, you know, there's that big mall that goes off and at, a, at an angle. Their, their problem was his idea of the park. And this, again, is both him and I think Vox's. The park was, you were supposed to be in a, another world when you were in the park. But the park is so narrow that you're constantly aware of the streets and the city. So it's, it's all about tricking people and so that they're not aware of that they're very close to the, the two avenues that run on each side of the park. Uh, and, and the whole park is about that and, and creating the... That's why the mall goes at an angle, so you sort of have a view that doesn't gets you away from the sides and then and then you you have these big green areas the big the big meadows as well as the the ramble which was a way of integrating the rockiness of the park yeah because they had to contend with a pretty or uh, rugged terrain correct that was a particular problem with sinking the streets they had to blast those streets out of rock. <laughs> it wasn't just excavation. So it was a it was a huge job. They never he never did that again. Nobody could afford it. And I, I'm not even sure the city knew how much how expensive it was all going to be. But uh, sinking a road in solid rock, sinking three roads actually in solid rock is an incredibly expensive project. You have to remember this is be, everything is horse drawn. There there's no machinery yet. Uh, and yet they're bringing in big trees. I mean, full-grown trees are being brought in to. Yeah, to because get they were quite started. mature, correct? I mean, um, they, the, they, the, they the landscape of, that was brought in was quite mature. At least in in some cases, yes, they they were because he wanted to get a start and not have to wait. Later, then later on, as he his budgets get tightened in in other projects, he, he plans much younger things, but. 
at that point they there are these there are photographs of these horse-drawn vehicles for for with enormous tree tree root balls uh, being moved around and and so on. How long but, does he work on the park, Vital? Years and years. I mean, he, there's an interruption because, the, of course, the Civil War happens, so everything stops. Um, and then after the Civil War, he resumes work on it. Uh, Does it change his ideas when he resumes work after the war? Not, not his landscape ideas. That that sort of comes much later. But, but his uh, no, I, I think it. By then, they're committed to the plan, and and everybody, you know, that's that's happening. And it, a lot of it is. The the plant the part gets finished, but he his work he continues as the superintendent. That kind of work continues, and actually until the very end, he he can't avoid getting mixed in with politics because there's still an awful lot of politics with the park, and eventually, uh, he it he quits actually several times. Olmsted is one of those people who who quits all the time and then they have to bring him back. And, but at, in the end he finally quits and he quits and leaves New York. And that's when he moves to Boston because he sort of, he's had it, but he you could say that he devoted a large chunk of his life to the park. Um, because of course building a park, it's not like building a building. You, it takes a long time for, for everything to grow in. Uh, it was, it was a large park, but even when it was literally finished, it wasn't finished because it, a lot of it took time to, for things to grow and and so on. So he he, he works until he must be in his sixties or seventies when when he finally moves to Boston, and that's when he he kind of cuts off his work on the park, and and it's partly partly it isn't just quitting. He he sort of loses control of things. The at one point. The city realized this: how much money is being spent on this park, and so so inevitably they tighten the purse, and and of course that creates all kind of problems for him because he wants to do things, but they just won't give him the money to do it, and and so that's ultimately what drives him away from from the thing. But but this is after really quite a long time. So so yes, he does spend a long time on the on on the park. Yeah, hearing you describe it, um, of course, having been in the park, it's an extraordinary um, uh, park, and one is focused, obviously, on the design. But in listening to you describe Olmsted's involvement, you realize that, obviously, he had an enormous vision with Vox, but he also had the grit and the stamina and the kind of technical ability to be able to execute. Uh, and that seems to be a different skill set um, that he was able to manage. Um but I, I think right before, uh, you know, when I when you started talking about Central Park, you said that it really wasn't the project, even though it's probably the project he's best known for. It's not the project that convinced him to embark on a career as a landscape architect. So, what was that project? That was Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and that he, I mean, he has this, there's this whole period during the Civil War where he runs the Sanitary Commission, which is sort of a version of the Red Cross, which, which, you know, more, more people, they, more people died in wars from disease than from getting shot at that, in that period, because the, the understanding of treating wounds was so primitive. And that's what the commission was set up to do. So that's a whole separate story, but he, 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 he devotes a number of years to, to organizing the commission and running it. Um, and then at, at, the war is still on. He finally leaves the commission. He he still he still owes a lot of money because of these failures of publishing, and so he needs a job to do that. And he gets a job running a mine in California, a gold mine, the the Mariposa, which is a huge property. With the problem, of course, is that it's the gold is running out by then. So it's another case where the project doesn't quite work out uh, as as well as it as he had hoped. Uh, and his his whole family, he moves the whole family out there. the The main plus in in later life is that he sees Yosemite, and and remember, this is a man who knows he knows the South. The South is not a terrifically beautiful landscape. It's sort of 
backwoods and swampy. And uh, he knows Connecticut. He knows New England. Um, but he ha he hasn't he unlike like most Easterners, he had never traveled. There's no trains yet, so he has to take a boat through the Panama Canal to get to California. But he he, he discovers Yosemite, and it sort of because of this landscape sensibility he has, it just blows him away because it's it's this huge monumental landscape plus a very intimate landscape. When you're in the valley, you're, you're, you're also, there's a little creek that runs through it, trees. It's, it's, it's a completely different type of landscape than he had been used to. And anyway, he's there. The, 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 the mine is failing. It's clear that he's going he, he has to leave and, you know, he doesn't know what to do. And he gets a letter from Vox and Vox says, look, I've been approached by Brooklyn. They want to build a big park. And uh, you have to come and we have to do this together. I can't do it by myself. And you have to come back. And of course, Olmsted at this point has no thought of being a landscape architect. He thought Central Park for him was a bureaucratic sort of mission, but it wasn't some, you couldn't, he didn't imagine you could make a living doing this because obviously there weren't that many cities who were going to do parks and how could you do this? And so there's a whole back and forth for months uh, between Vox and Olmsted. And Olmsted says, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I thought, I think I need a government job or maybe oh, what he'd love to do is edit another magazine, but there aren't, there's nothing on the horizon. And, and Vox keeps pushing and Vox, Vox does some, has already done something quite remarkable because he's, he's rearranged the site. The, Brooklyn had a certain site in mind, which was just, bisected by a big street. And he said, no, we can't have a street in the park. And he convinces them to sell the land on one side of the street and get more land on the other. So the Prospect Park is an island, a green island in the city. There's no traffic in it. There's no sunken roads, none of that stuff. And, and finally, he convinces Olmsted that, that it's, a, it's a real opportunity that, that the they're not going to have the politics which they had on Central Park. The city is all behind it. Um, and, and Olmsted decides, agrees. And that's when he, he really, they form a partnership. Olmsted and Vox form a partnership. And, and that's when his sort of career starts. That's when he, he, he decides this is what he's going to do. I can't remember how old he is, but he must be, in his late thirties, by then at least, maybe a slightly older. He has he has three or four kids. Uh, in the meantime, his, his brother had died, uh, and so he married his brother's widow. So he has his his stepson, as well as his 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 own son and and daughter. And so he he goes back to New York, and in fact, everything that Volks has said is true. Uh, they, he meets the the people from Brooklyn. And they say, it's great. Here we, and it's the same deal. He's he's going to organize the whole thing. He's not, it's not, they're not just consultants. They're he's the contractor as well as and it's almost like say, a design build, so to speak. It's like they're designing it and, that, and executing he's a, it. He's he's yes, he's the contractor. It's all I mean, the engineering's up to him, everything. And the 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 city fathers sort of have one meeting with them and they say, okay, here go, we agree, whatever you want, whatever you want to do is we'll go, we'll back you up, and that's it. I mean, and, and then and then they they basically have a free hand. So, Prospect Park is a much better park than Central Park for a number of reasons. One, because it doesn't have streets cutting through it. Uh, secondly, it's a big kind of big squarish oval shape it's not a long skinny piece of spaghetti so it's a much better shape for a park uh, and thirdly of course they know what they're doing they're experienced they've done it once and they they have it they've got that under their belt so it would it was bound to be a better design because they they know what they're doing they're not novices anymore and and so and the and the design of Prospect Park is wonderful because it's basically th just three things. It, it's these huge meadows, and they're enormous. The long meadow, and they curve, so they look endless. You you when you're at the beginning, 
you can't see the end of it because it sort of curves around. And then when you get halfway, you can't see the beginning because because that's they worked it out so that curves. So you feel you're you're in this enormous space, and then there's a huge lake on one side, but a really big lake, and 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 then on one side there's this this kind of wooded almost like an adirondack landscape so you've got these three you know these three things and they're very it's a very simple plan they're very spaced they're sort of the three parts of the thing and uh you know it's a, it's a, it's a it doesn't have the fame of central park uh, because of course it's in brooklyn it's not Brooklyn is going to be one day as famous as New York, I suspect. But for the mo- for, certainly in the 19th century, it was just an, an appendage to New York, and, and the New York City was the place. But on the other hand, Prospect Park never deteriorated the way Central Park did. Central Park almost disappeared in in a sense uh, because it was a, it was kind of abandoned in the by the 50s. It was a dangerous place; you couldn't go there in the evening. Uh, it, it was really things were the, the things it had not been maintained properly. That was never true in Brooklyn. So what you see in Brooklyn is really what what they intended to do because it was, in other words, you're you're getting a more authentic experience than in Central Park. You're it's a com it's a it's more complicated and it's. There are parts that have to be that have been changed. There are things that Moses added, the skating rink, uh, the various other things, and and so uh, Prospect Park really, from a purely design point of view and and organizational point of view, is is kind of the perfect Olmsted Park. Also, it's the last occasion he had to be a superintendent. Everything he does after that, in a modern sense, he's a consultant. Mm. He's like he's like a landscape architect today. He has a contract to make a design. Uh, Olmsted contracts were always long term. So when you signed a contract, you also said, "I'm coming back after two years, and then after five years, and then after ten years." And that was all part of the deal. Uh, so. So it wasn't just he didn't just make a design and walk away. I mean, it was it was very much the other approach. But uh, the construction was no longer something that he was involved in the day to day construction and uh, construction, of course, meant everything drainage, uh, underground drainage. But New York Central Park is full of underground drainage to get to get water away from certain parts of the park. So so his he becomes more identifiable as as we would think of as a professional landscape architect of course that word it doesn't exist yet so uh and and he he was not he didn't like that word because he he made it it made it sound like subservient to real architecture <laughs> landscape architecture and his idea of landscape architecture was much more expansive than our idea I mean, for him, the landscape architect was the planner. So when he was hired, for instance, uh, by Lawrenceville School, because they wanted a plan for the school, he's first he's hired, and then he hires the architects. So he's the important. It, he isn't somebody who the architects hire to fill up spaces with cute plants. I mean, he's the he's the master planner. When he does Biltmore, for instance. Was it one of his last projects? He's hired first. He's actually hired before the arch- the architect is hired, and he he has the sort of visionary discussions with the client, like where should the building be and what, how should this land be used? And so his idea of of, of landscape architecture is not our idea, and he, and and in a way, the profession has lost that kind of uh, central role, partly because, you know, in, in the 19th century, there were no city planners. And so so the city, he he considered himself a planner, and there, there was no profession of city planning. And his son is, is instrumental in establishing the, the first 
actual president of the City Planning Association is, is Frederick Lowenstead Jr., who's, who's both a planner and a landscape architect. And it, but later on, they, they divide. And planning is, is kind of seen as a social discipline. And, and landscape architecture is seen as a more design discipline. And it's and 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 they and they lose the connection between the two. But for Olmsted, they were they were one thing, and and so planning and and landscape were all tied together. They mm. weren't they weren't separate disciplines at all. And that's right. why his his planning of when when we say that you know Olmsted did Smith College, we it doesn't mean that he just decided where the trees and shrubs and flowers should be. He actually laid out the college. He laid it, he decided where the buildings should be and where the open spaces should be. He's the he's the master planner. And then the architects come later and they, they fill in the space. But that's the case with Bryn Mawr and and it's the case with Stanford. I mean all the campus plans that he did, he's very much the planner as well as the landscape architect, because the landscape and for him, the landscape and the plan were sort of combined. They weren't. They were. They were. They were not separated. I think that's an that's a very important point that you make. Um, and I, I guess I wanted to return just for a moment because you briefly touched yes. upon his visit to Yosemite, you know, which had a profound effect on him. Um, and so I was. I was curious, what um, in his later work, what do, how how do you think that visit played out? Um, maybe in his designs, or, or even his writing, or or maybe even his generally his attitude towards nature and and uh, and landscape. I think it had an effect. It had a practical effect because uh, Yosemite was very close to where where the Mariposa Mine was. So. So it was a place that he would visit all the time. And he ended up uh, being part of a commission that the state created to create a state park. And, and so the idea that if you, if you had this beautiful landscape, this special landscape, you needed to preserve it, that there were special lands. And, and he was later very much involved in creating the park at Niagara Falls, which is another special landscape that needs preservation, that, that isn't simply, can't be just simply treated as part of uh, real estate potential. Yeah. And so there was this immediate, that practical effect, but also he had, it, it, I think it affected his, his, his vision, partly seeing how there were all these different landscapes in America, and and that made it different than, say, England. I mean, the English park and the English landscape are really com com combined in a way, and it, it it's a little island with this ancient landscape, which people have been kind of uh, taken care of for centuries, uh, and that was very different than in our landscape, which had prairies and and these these enormous mountains that you see around Yosemite. So so I think it it. It, has, it gives him, it sort of opens up the idea of what a landscape can be, whether uh, it's not just, a, he's greatly, in, <clears throat> he's greatly influenced by in English landscape, but this opens it up and, and brings in a lot of other influences which have nothing to do with the English landscape at all, but which have to do, especially the, <clears throat> this sense of kind of limitless uh, distance, and that's where the, the the title of the book comes from, clearly in the distance, because a lot of his landscapes are about seeing something far away uh, and and giving you a sense of enormous distance that's actually bigger than whatever size the park has. And some of his parks are quite big. It looks bigger. It always makes you feel that you have in freedom, that there's something around the corner. Uh, that you can't quite see the that you don't see the ends of things. So it's not like a French garden with axes and a much more formal arrangement. Uh, it's it it's this sense of of expansiveness that I think comes very much from his Western traveling. 
Yeah, I guess it, it's there that he makes the sort of transition um, in hearing you describe it from the inspiration of the English landscape into a kind of an American landscape. Because you can't think about uh, America's landscape without thinking about Olmsted. He really um, defined it, so to speak. Yes, we 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 think of him as an environmentalist, but I, I don't think he was an environmentalist in in the modern sense. Because he wasn't about saving nature; he was actually about creating nature. He would, he would see these. He he was partly about saving nature in the case of Yosemite and Niagara Falls, but he was also very much about trying to create the experience. He, you know, not everybody could go to see Yosemite uh, or the Adirondacks, which which he also loved. So he was trying to recreate that, and I I make this. Slightly tongue-in-cheek comparison, but not completely with Walt Disney, because there's a way in which an Olmsted Park is like a theme park. It has themes, for one thing, and it has these experiences. Uh, if you go to Prospect Park, there's this part of it which has, which has this little, there's a waterfall, and then a, a, a little, there are boulders. It's all man-made, but it looks like a, a, a funny little stream that you might come across in the Adirondacks. Uh, the big difference, and it's an important difference, is that in a in a Olmsted Park, there, there's there's no fiberglass boulders. The boulders are real boulders. So the elements of an Olmsted Park are real elements. They're they're not fake. Yeah. And the second thing, which it's easy to miss, but if you go to to say Central Park, you can go everywhere. You can go. There isn't any backstage. It's all open, sure. it's like nature. If you're in, if you're in a forest, you can wander anywhere. And I think that's very much a quality of of an Olmsted Park as well. We've been told uh, we're coming to the end of the episode, and I could keep talking with you for a couple more hours. You've uh, told us really just the tip of the iceberg of an extraordinary figure who uh, shaped our thinking about the profession of landscape architecture, but also defined some of the most extraordinary parks, which I've had the pleasure of experiencing, and I hope many who are listening have as well. If uh, you have not read A Clearing in the Distance, I couldn't uh, recommend it more. I think it really is the seminal work that um, speaks about this legendary figure. And I'm not going to be asking you my uh, famous last question of what is your favorite city and why, because we're going to be talking one last time. Um, so I thank you again for your generosity, for your ability to uh, tell us these great stories and uh, for what we can learn from them. So thank you again, Vitol. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 